Well, welcome to the first of our monthly segments, a little more true crime, when we look at um, Canadian cases that have been high profile, unsolved, that remain a mystery, and perhaps none more so right now than this one. Uh, it was five years ago tomorrow that billionaire generic drug titan Barry Sherman and his wife Honey were found murdered in their Toronto home. Uh, Sherman was the um, chairman and CEO of a company called Apotex. He was estimated to be the 12th wealthiest person in this country. There was no forced entry, as far as police have said, there was no forced entry at the home. But early reports, and this is where it all kind of gets off on the wrong foot, early reports suggested a murder-suicide. But that was quickly dispelled. Six weeks after the bodies were found, police declared that a double murder investigation had indeed begun. Here is Toronto Police back in 2017. We have sufficient evidence to describe this as a double homicide. Honey and Barry Sherman were found deceased in the lower level pool area, hanging by belts from a poolside railing. I should say that was early 2018. And even then, as you'll hear more about coming up, the Sherman family was frustrated by how police were handling the case. They hired their own private investigator. For them, it's been difficult to balance their patience with their frustration with us and our investigation, not unlike any other family who has suffered such a sudden and profound loss. And yet here we are five years later. The murders remain a mystery. Despite 250 interviews, so say Toronto police, and 1,000 investigative actions. There's been video of a person with a strange gait that they believe may be a suspect. We just don't know. Police still have made no arrests and named no suspects, although they do say the case is active and ongoing. So for our first installment of A Little More True Crime, joining me now is Toronto Star Chief Investigative Reporter Kevin Donovan. He's author of The Billionaire Murders, The Mysterious Deaths of Barry and Honey Sherman. Uh, Kevin, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on today. Five years. It goes by quickly. I remember in my crime reporting days, you know, the anniversaries would come up quickly on you and, and you sort of look back at the case, what it was like when you first got the assignment. Uh, it must feel like uh, we know so much and know so little five years later. I think it's fair to say that every time I learn something new, I learn something that I don't know. And uh, and it's in, it's in multiples, it seems. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of ground that, that I've been able to cover even since the publication of the book in 2019. And here we are, as you say, five years in, still going. Remind me of the circumstances, because we go back to December of 2017, and a few people, people may have known the name uh, Barry Sherman, they may have known the name Apotex, but this was a, a strange circumstances from the, from the get-go. Yes, and I was aware of Barry Sherman because at the time I was managing our investigative team and a couple of my uh, the reporters on the team had done some stories on problems at Apotex. And so I was, I was aware of him, but knew nothing else and, and didn't even know the name of his wife. What happens is on the uh, Friday uh, late afternoon, news breaks uh, in Toronto and, and ultimately around the, the world that two billionaires, a billionaire couple, uh, among the richest people in Canada had been found dead in their Toronto home in the basement swimming pool room. And, and, and quite quickly, I, I didn't get involved in the story for another three weeks, but looking back on the coverage quite quickly, the story comes out uh, broken by the Toronto Sun, actually, that it is murder-suicide according to Toronto police sources. And 
Toronto Star and everybody else to talk to their sources. And that was a story that came out. And my first assignment was, was it a murder-suicide? Yeah, because that, as we know, anytime police choose a certain direction or see a case a certain way from the get-go, it does impact the early days of the investigation. And I gather that's precisely what happened here. Yes, and it, it did. And, and you can see how it develops from the Friday evening. The bodies are discovered on a, on a Friday. We're going to learn into it that they actually were murdered on the Wednesday. But on the, the Friday evening, a, a junior homicide detective stands out front of the Sherman home in front of a bunch of reporters and, and says the following. Brandon Price says, we're not looking for any outstanding suspects, calming fears in the neighborhood, and there's no sign of forced entry. And, and that telegraphs to veteran reporters at the scene who confirm it with sources that they're looking at murder-suicide. And as, as we now know, that that was wrong. But for the next six weeks, the police are asking questions like, why would Barry have killed his wife? And they're not asking questions like, who would have killed the billionaires? Which... At some point, I mean, and, and not to fast forward too much, but before long, Toronto police also begin to look at the at the other option, right? I mean, I suppose within an investigation, they would need to look at the other option, uh, which would be this was a double murder. They start looking at it, but and I had a role in them starting to to look at double murder because what happens after the, the police do their autopsy, the Sherman family hire their own forensic pathologist who does a second set of autopsies and, 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 and determines quite quickly that it's a double murder. But what's interesting is that the Sherman family doesn't tell the police that. There's no press conference. They're still upset that the police are pursuing murder-suicide. And I, through my sources, five weeks into the case, get the results of that autopsy. We write a story, put it on the front page, and then the Toronto police uh, get the word from up on high, you better talk to this second pathologist who the police had never talked to. And they talked to him, and then the police held a press conference right after that, confirming what was in our story. It's a double murder. And now police have to change. They do a 360. Now they start asking who would have done it. But homicide cases, first 48 hours, are key. They've blown six weeks. That is highly exceptional that, that something like, like that would happen, specifically with such a high-profile case. It's shocking to me that they missed all these clues. I mean, the signs of the that Barry and Honey were, were tied up, to, their wrists were tied, and then no ties found at the scene, that the ligatures that killed them is not the belt, it's something else. They missed all this. And my homicide sources say the problem is the junior pathologist. My pathologist sources say the problem is the homicide cops. Everybody's pointing fingers. Eventually, they get it sorted out. But again, time is lost. So people understand, though, there was another very high-profile case going on in the background here that may have had an impact on how much or how many resources were being poured in to this other very high-profile case. That's right. There was the MacArthur homicide investigation that coincidentally was, was coming to fruition right at that time. Now, I, I've talked to people who worked on that case, and they've said, no, it just there's different teams that, that do different things, and this didn't affect it. But I, I have to think that it, it had there, – there was a resource issue for the police. The other thing is that anybody who watches crime shows, uh, they'll see that the, you know, the first people on the scene are usually homicide investigators, and, and whichever top cop is assigned to the case goes to the, the scene – 
the officer assigned the Sherman case doesn't go to the scene when the bodies are there. And in fact, she doesn't go for three more days. And it's just one of a cascade of, of errors that the Toronto police made. And, and I would argue are, are still making in, in their investigation of this case. As a reminder to listeners, uh, Bruce MacArthur was uh, a serial killer that had been stalking gay men in Toronto's gay village and was, and was then caught, or at least a, an arrest was announced, I believe, a month later. We t- undertook these investigative steps, exhaustive investigative steps, um, to identify this individual. Uh, and now having gotten to the point where we have not been able to do so with these videos, uh, this is now the prudent time to release this to the public and seek the public's assistance. We were able to eliminate uh, pretty well every other person um, on the, the video footage uh, that we've obtained. Um, and so we're left with a, a, a very glaring sort of unknown with this individual that requires an explanation if there's a legitimate one. Kevin Donovan is with us this half hour. He is author of The Billionaire Murders, The Mysterious Deaths of Barry and Honey Sherman, the chief investigative reporter at the Toronto Star. He's been covering uh, this case for many years now. And uh, we're talking about where we're at five years later, and perhaps one of the most high profile unsolved murders in this country right now, or murder cases in this country. So we know what happened the first six weeks. Police um, found themselves with a theory that it ended up being not true uh, and were then caught trying to catch up. Since then, there have been some advances, but you uncovered at one point that they had held on to a piece of evidence for years about a potential suspect without ever asking the public about them. Again, something very strange. Yes, Within, I would say, seven weeks of the bodies being found, the police have collected a lot of surveillance video from people's door and uh, garage cameras in the area. And they're going through them. There's a lot of information. It's the equivalent of, I think, 2,000 HD movies that they have collected from around the Sherman home. And they find that there is one individual, and they call this person the walking man, and nobody can figure out who this person is. The person is five foot six to five foot nine, probably more on the five foot six. He's wearing an overcoat. He's walking with what the police say is a condition called drop foot, where he raises his right foot up as he walks. It's a distinctive pattern of walking. And he's in the area of the Sherman home exactly when the murders are committed, around roughly around 10 to 11 o'clock that Wednesday night. This is two days before the bodies are found. They get this person on the video. They ask people around the community, no, he's not a known person. No, he wasn't out walking a dog. And they think he's the killer. That's early on in 2018. The police don't come out with that for four years. And they come out with it as a bit of a, what I describe as a Hail Mary, using a football term. They're saying, do you know this person? And the public doesn't know this person. I would argue that bring that out at the time when it happens, when people's memories are fresh. They bring it out four years later because they, as it turns out, they spent four years trying to see if this person was carrying a cellular telephone and was communicating with with somebody. And they've come up completely empty handed. That's the story of the walking man. They think he's the killer or lookout or something like that. And they don't know who he is. And spent four years trying to figure it out before asking the public if someone with this unique gait would be recognizable. Because one would imagine, again, though, since then, the public has not helped identify this person, I gather. 
No, the, the, the public has called the police. I, I've certainly had a number of calls from people saying, I think I know that person. I think it's my uncle. Like just cra- crazy things that people have come out with. And I've had doctors call saying, yeah, I might have seen a patient at some point that looks like that. Nobody knows who the person is. Re- recently, I was in court with the detective asking questions as part of a process to unseal uh, some of the police documents to put scrutiny on the case. And I said, well, did you check the airport that night? Did you go to the airport to check security surveillance to see if, you know, you think this is an international crime? They, they've said it is. Do you see somebody like that going through security? The police say no. But why would we have done that? They say that's just 101 to me. Yeah, I remember covering the disappearance of Cecilia Jung way back in 2003 and calling the police and saying, well, did you check the security cameras on the 407? And of course, the answer was yes, right? Yes, of course we did. <laughs> it's, uh, but I guess at that point, they didn't know what they were looking for. You mentioned at one point that they found no forensic evidence at the scene that helped them help point them in the right direction. Yes, and that's something I've, I've just come across recently in a release of documents that they processed the scene and nothing came out of that, that that steered them in the direction of an individual. Speaking about forensics, though, and, and problems in the police investigation, one of the key things that you do at the start of an investigation is you want to exclude everybody who naturally is at a crime scene. So, you know, the officers, the forensic people, the firefighters, the people who might respond first to a to a call from 911 but you also want to exclude people that that worked in the home so the cleaning person the realtor who discovered the bodies the personal trainer who was there the morning that they died and make sure that we have their fingerprints and their dna please don't do that for 9 months we are taking some comfort in knowing that you two are together forever and neither of you had to suffer like we are suffering now You were like a lock and a key, each pretty useless on your own. But together, you unlocked the whole world for yourselves, and for us, and for so many others. We promise to carry on your legacy of greatness and giving from now until forever. To my father, you are my hero. I don't mean that like how other, I don't mean that like how all dads are heroes to their sons. You were a real life superhero. When I was a kid in elementary school, we did these book reports on great Canadians. And I would always choose someone like Wayne Gretzky or Terry Fox. I didn't know at that time that you were one of those types of people. You privately told our family that you had been appointed to the Order of Canada, the greatest recognition of Canadian greatness. You were always so humble, but I know how proud you were to get that news and how excited you were to finally be recognized for what you are. I don't know what will happen now with that award, if anything, but to our family, you were always the greatest Canadian. 
The Toronto Star's chief investigator reporter, Kevin Donovan, is with us. He's author of The Billionaire Murders, The Mysterious Deaths of Barry and Honey Sherman. We're coming up on the fifth anniversary of those murders. They remain unsolved, perhaps one of Canada's most high-profile unsolved crimes at this point. Kevin, you've had a lot of opportunity to talk to the family. Uh, Clearly, anytime there is a high-profile murder of this case, the family dynamic is looked at. What did you find? The first thing I found is that the family didn't want to talk. They didn't want to talk to any of the media. They didn't want to talk to me. And it was a long process to get, uh, first of all, the friends of Barry and Honey Sherman to speak to me, which uh, they, they did. And and I'm on quite good terms and keep in touch with all of them these days. The, the family was more difficult. I'll ultimately, talked to people uh, around the edges of the family. And then I ended up interviewing one of the daughters of the Shermans and the son, Jonathan. And at the same time, I had access through various sources to a lot of the the dynamics as you describe it the, and the correspondence between them. And it's clear to me that certainly I would not describe this as a healthy family relationship. People aren't getting along that well. Barry and Honey, I think, have to take the brunt of a bit of that because Honey grew up, she was born in a displaced persons camp after the Holocaust. Her parents lived in a slave camp during the war. And she had a tough upbringing. And she was known to have a bit of a a sharp tongue, understandably, I would say. And she wanted kids to work. She, She didn't want to give them everything, although they were billionaires. Barry was different. Barry was a soft touch. He solved problems by giving out money and uh, giving out money to to a lot of people, including the kids. They called it the Bank of Barry. If you look at the the holdings of the the Sherman children, the, the, you don't see conventional mortgages. It's it's money that's being advanced from Barry. And so so yeah, there's a lot of discord. That the everything really came to a head about a year after the murders when. And this is according to Jonathan, who I've interviewed, who's the the son. He says that uh, his sister, Alexandra, believes he was somehow involved in in the murder. And I've written about this for the star. And Jonathan says to me, you know, know, I've got I've had nothing to do with it, but she believes that, that I am responsible in some way. And so there's shifting dynamics among the four children. I think right now that Jonathan is a bit of an island from his three sisters it, it's it's unfortunate and sad, obviously, that uh, the family that stood up at the funeral and announced that they were going to be united, uh, now not united at all. Obviously, the police looked into both the family dynamic, the commercial interests. I mean, uh, you know, Barry Sherman was a very, very wealthy man who uh, heading a very successful company. Did they ever find any idea of who could have a motive for this? Was there any theories, working theories about what may have possessed someone to want this elderly, very wealthy couple dead? Well, I only know what I've been able to find out. So, And I don't know what the theories were, what they have determined and, and excluded. That, By the way, the police say that they've not cleared anybody. They, they're looking at all sorts of people. As far as the question about finance, the, the police say that they believe this was a financially motivated crime. I don't believe personally that this is a big case of big pharma, you know, pharmaceutical companies rubbing out Barry Sherman, because why would they kill Barry uh, when they are always suing him? And also, why kill Honey? So I don't think that's the case. The police have also said that the estate of Barry Sherman, the estate being his holdings uh, and ultimately who got what and who didn't get what, uh, 
that's part of their case. And they won't say why. And that's the thing that they have been the most secretive about, that one issue, why the estate is important to them. And I, I've argued to, to try and get that un, unsealed. And so far, they won't say the importance of it. But you know, Barry left his, his wealth to his four children. It is possible that there's perhaps somebody else who thought they were due some money and didn't get it. Yeah. I, what happened to the company? Oh, the company was sold right. quite recently. Apotex was, was sold by the estate to a company from New York that is not in the pharmaceutical business. They're in the chemical business. And so they uh, have decided that they're going to take Apotex. I think probably the hope of the government is that they're going to keep the operations in Canada. Apotex, uh, at the time of Barry Sherman's death, had 11,000 employees, 6,000 of them in Canada. It's a little smaller now, but still there's a lot, probably about 5,000 employees. And that has to go through regulatory control. But very shortly, I would say by the end of next year, that company will no longer be owned by the Shermans. And that leaves you know, the estate to be finally split up, uh, billions of dollars are being divided amongst uh, the four children and, and nobody else. And what was surprising to me, Barry Sherman was very generous in his life, gave out hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, and Honey, his wife, worked tirelessly as a as a charity uh, on charity boards and and as a very active fundraiser. There's nothing in the will for charity, and so now it's up to the four children to carry on their parents' legacy of giving. Yeah, for the family, the most perplexing and upsetting aspect of the investigation was the failure to recognize the obvious, that the bodies of Barry and Honey Sherman were staged post-mortem in a very deliberate manner. This entire process has caused needless additional pain and suffering to the Sherman family. As was stated earlier, the Sherman family understands the pressures and responsibilities that are placed upon the Toronto Police Service. Regrettably, it has become clear to them that despite the active pursuit of search warrants and exploring other investigative avenues, police resources have neither been properly managed nor effectively utilized. Therefore, as this new initiative, as an attempt to reignite an investigation, the Sherman family has asked me to announce the offer of a reward of up to $10 million for information leading to the apprehension and prosecution of those responsible for the murders of Honey and Barry Sherman. A call centre has been established to collect tips and information 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The toll-free number, North American Reward Line, is 1-833-668-0001. And the international number is 011-905-849-7373. Kevin Donovan is with us this uh, hour. We're talking about the deaths, the murders of Barry and Honey Sherman. Kevin is both the chief investigative reporter at the Toronto Star. He's also the author of The Billionaire Murders, The Mysterious Deaths of Barry and Honey Sherman. Um, You've mentioned this in, in several articles uh, that there was an idea of an international flair here, that somehow there are other countries that believe that police in Toronto believe that the answers to this mystery may lie abroad. What do we know about that? 
This came out uh, in my last cross-examination uh, in, I think it was in October, of uh, the lone uh, full-time detective working on the case. And, and he said that they pretty much exhausted the, their domestic investigation into this case. But something, he won't say what, has caused them to look internationally. And so what they're doing is a series of requests think of them like a search warrant, but but internationally, a request for information, some kind of data from five countries. Of course, they won't name the five countries. Two of them are among 35 countries Canada has a treaty with to share information in a criminal probe. The other three are countries that we don't have a relationship with. And as I've learned through this process, it's going to take a long time. It could take well over a year to get this information. And it's not a straight line between a detective in Toronto and one in country X. They've got to go through the Canadian Justice Department to make a request that goes overseas and goes down to the local authorities and then comes back. So so I, I think this is yet another Hail Mary. I haven't heard of any proof that this is actually something that they have a working theory of, but it's possible that they have maybe believed that the walking man was paid by somebody and that person resides in another country. I'm going to keep probing this, but, but right now I, I don't know which countries there are and I don't really know what the police are looking for, but it's some sort of data. They're still actively investigating this. There's still a detective assigned full-time to this case? There is. For five years, there's been one detective assigned full-time to this case, a Detective Constable Yim, who was seconded to the homicide squad. He does not go out interviewing people. His job is to manage this very lengthy search warrant process. And I, and I mentioned earlier the, the, the cellular telephone tracking that they tried to do for the walking man. So his job, Detective Yim's job, was to to make the request to the telecom, whether it be Bell or Rogers, uh, tell us all of them, uh, ask them for their data for that time period, for that area of Toronto. And then he's got to go through it. You can imagine a mind-numbing task looking for an electronic needle in a haystack. Yeah, it's That's not what law and order, right? It's not law and order. Right. Yeah. And what he's doing right now on this new request is preparing requests to go to Ottawa to send overseas. Uh, and by the way, if I say overseas, it could also be the United States. Right. That would be the possibility. They're obviously not overseas. And so he's trying to get that permission. And then whatever he gets back, he will look through it and maybe come up with that uh, proverbial needle. You know, what keeps you going on this one? Do you, do you think in your heart of hearts we'll ever know? When I was asked... When the book came out in 2019, would I ever know? I, I felt a, an arrest was around the, the corner. I, I think we will know one day who the who, at least who the police think it is. I, I think I'm going to get that information unsealed sometime in the next uh, year, I would I expect. But will there be an arrest? It, to me, it doesn't feel like it right now. But, you know, I was watching the other night uh, again, uh, the, uh, the press conference that the family's lawyer, Brian Greenspan, put out a year after it, and they put out a $10 million reward, which is still out there. Mm. And in that request, Brian Greenspan said, you know, we're trying to light a fire under the Toronto police, we're, and we're trying to say, basically, to somebody out there in the underworld, you could get wealthy by helping somebody go to, to jail for this case. 
And I'm starting to wonder if maybe that is ultimately going to be the solution. Somebody will know something and they'll come forward. Beyond that, I don't see that this, the legwork they're doing right now is going to get them anywhere, but I'm happy to be proven wrong. For them to say that, you know, we've, we've exhausted everything forensically, I'm not sure that they have. But one of the other things that I've learned about this process is that there's no mechanism to scrutinize a homicide investigation. There is in something like the MacArthur case or, or the Paul Bernardo case, where there ultimately is a commission that looks into it. But generally, we have to trust the police to do a good job. And there's no way to check if they did, except for this process that I'm undergoing. Which is essentially involves you requesting documents from the police and then going to court to argue why you should get them. So in other words, this has been a painstaking process for you to try to uncover more about what exactly happened in this. You're essentially scrutinizing the investigation. Yeah, I, I am. And, and you know, doing it on behalf of the Toronto Star and, and, and the public. And, and I think it's important because beyond this very high profile case, there are unfortunately and sadly many other homicides in big cities. And I think it is the job of the media to scrutinize the police. And if they haven't done a good job, find that out, put it on the front page, and hopefully in the next case, they'll do a better job. That's just natural. And in most businesses, and Toronto Police is not a business, but in most big organizations, those processes exist. They don't with the police. And for you, I mean, uh, will, you, will you keep going? There's still so much to learn, I guess. Yes, yeah, and, and I will keep going. I, I, uh, I, uh, the judge on the case is retiring, but I said to Justice Pringle, "I'm not going anywhere," and she, she chuckled. Uh, I, I am going to see this through and see what more I, I can learn uh, about it, and 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 also what it tells me about all sorts of other worlds: the world of of crime, of pharmaceuticals, of, of philanthropy. Uh, the case touches on a lot of different issues, and of course, at the heart of it is what attracts people to it the most, I think. It's a whodunit. It is, and it remains one five years later. Kevin Donovan, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on.